Welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that... Oh, hold on, guys. My mom needs to use the phone. I'll be back in like 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome. welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that knows the age, sex, and location of all your favorite pop culture artifacts from the 80s and 90s. <laughs> LOL. Especially the age, unfortunately. <laughs> LMFAO. R-O-T-F-L-M-A-O. <laughs> OMG. <laughs> I'm Angela Bennett, your podcast host, most likely to be Angela Bennett, a systems analyst employed at Cathedral Software, a resident of 407 Finley Avenue in Venice, California, a former patient of Dr. Alan Champion. (laughs) Yes, that's me. I'm Angela Bennett. (laughs) I'm Becky, and I'm the podcast host most likely to think the perfect man is butch, beautiful, and brilliant. Captain America meets Albert Schweitzer. Yeah, whoever that second guy is. (laughs) (laughs) And I am Seth Pearson, the co-host who is Cyberbob. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> In today's episode, we've got podcast. We are talking about the internet, specifically the internet as we knew it in the mid to late 1990s. <laughs> Can we go back to we've got podcast? <laughs> if, if we must. <laughs> because it took me a minute to be like, what do they mean by that? It sounds like a diagnosis when you put it that way. <laughs> I think you need to um, do a little impression. We've got podcasts. <laughs> oh, but I, I couldn't possibly do it better than you just did. <laughs> oh, that's going to be my new away message. Do you think that guy got paid a flat fee or is he getting residuals? <laughs> I watch a video about him, actually. <laughs> you have an answer to my question? Yes. He was just some like someone's husband and he was just recorded it like it was supposed to be a temporary thing. And then they ended up using it. So he ended up being crazy famous. But he wasn't like a voice actor or anything. He was just like a regular oh guy. Oh, my God. You have an answer to my crazy question. That's I have all the answers. I am the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jeeves. Are you Cyberbob? <laughs> Are you Jeeves? <laughs> I am both. Jeeves is Cyberbob. <laughs> Whatever happened to Jeeves? Man, that site went away. Google buried him in a shallow grave. (laughs) In this episode, we are talking about the internet, specifically the internet as we knew it in the mid to late 1990s, and we are hoping that no calls come through and kick us off our connection as we record. And mainly, we are focusing on how pop culture interpreted, reacted to, and half-heartedly embraced the net back in the 1990s, which was mostly through paranoid conspiracy thrillers, peaking in 1995 when Hackers and The Net were both released a few months apart, surrounded by a host of other like-minded movies about what was then cutting-edge technology, The Lawnmower Man, Disclosure, Virtuosity, Johnny Mnemonic, You've Got Mail. We'll talk about them all briefly, but mostly about The Net and Hackers. So let's dial up and connect, shall we?
So that's an awful sound, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That's a beautiful melody to me. Frankly, it sounds like a choir of angels, so I don't know what you're talking about. I get PTSD from hearing these internet sounds. <laughs> they are so ingrained in like past me. It's like looking at a, an embarrassing picture from seventh grade of yourself, just hearing <laughs> these sounds. Yeah, I can believe that like we had to do dial in. That makes sense. But I can't believe that like there was no way for it to be a better sound that, that we all just like accepted that that was the sound of the internet for years. But like, what, what was that like a fake sound or was that the sound that it was like? No, that that's the actual sound of data. You know, like the touch tone dial tone sounds are the sound of the modem dialing the phone number for the Internet company's modems and servers. And then the other noises there are the modem negotiating the connection, like announcing itself, figuring out the speed, showing who you are and giving your credentials for your login, and then starting the internet connection. Like just like pressing each of the different numbers on the phone pad, like the modem's sending the data. Wow. But I don't believe that there was no way to like change that noise and make it better. Why did we have to even hear it? Right. Like, why wasn't it muted or something? Yeah. Now that I have no idea. I feel like that was one of those things like you've got mail, you know, that was just like a rough sound effect that stuck. (laughs) Or maybe it was put on so that you would be able to confirm that your modem was working and doing it. Mm -hmm. I have no technological basis for this, but I think they could have fixed it (laughs) and they just neglected to. That's my my conspiracy theory. Well, at some point they did. (laughs) At some point they did fix it. Well, yeah, because we're not dialing up anymore. Oh, I guess that's true. We've solved all of our problems now. It's the future, guys. Right. (laughs) It's a breeze. So once again, our uh, current state of pandemic seems to compound the relevance of a certain topic. (laughs) Because this year, I would say the internet has become even more central to our lives than it already was, which was already very, very central. In my case, anyways, I wake up, I immediately open my work computer to work for a tech company. And after work, I start streaming a movie and I'm probably also like texting someone during it. So the amount of time I use the internet these days is uh, disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) I am only not using the internet when I'm with my child. And even then I'm using the internet probably. (laughs) Like we're streaming Elmo or or we're FaceTiming with family, which I think we do at least once a day. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm only not using the internet when I'm asleep, and even that is well up for debate. (laughs) (laughs) I basically live on the internet, and that was definitely true before lockdown times. Yeah, like everything, as the hackers would say, IRL, is basically (laughs) not happening right now. Um, You know, restaurants, travel, going to the movies, coffee shops, like pretty much everything we can do now is just on the internet. Um, we even used to record this podcast in person. We're not doing that. So, no. Hooray for the internet, I guess. <laughs> do you guys have long, bushy beards? It's been a while. <laughs> I do, since like a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> I, I'm pretty Rasputin y at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so, we are about the perfect age to have seen the rise of the internet. It basically didn't exist for most people when we were kids. We remember a world without it, and yet it became a big thing during our most formative years. And we have talked a bit about our internet use as teens on the podcast in various episodes, including ones about Jonathan Taylor Thomas and the (laughs) X-Files, but, you know, probably elsewhere too. So some of this might be a bit of a recap, but I think it is worth revisiting. So my opening question for you guys 
is, what is your first memory of using computers and or the internet? What did you typically use it for as a teenager? And how big a part of your life was it, would you say, in junior high or high school? Um, we had a word processor before we had a computer and that's kind of like a typewriter married a computer. <laughs> if you, did you guys have word processors? Oh yes. Okay. No, I didn't. I never knew what it was. I always thought it was a computer for a long time. And then, well, it's like a, it was a typewriter, but you could save, you could save your work on, on a disc, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then print it versus a typewriter. You know how that works. Um, no, and so I don't, we were, go into more detail. <laughs> you're going to have to Google it. <laughs> I bring that up because we were always like on the forefront of technology in our house. Like if it was like a new thing, my dad would buy it and bring it home. And that would be like, we'd be obsessed with it. I was on that word processor all the time. And then I remember when he brought home our first computer and it was the, the green and white and black and, and gray computer, like the little box. The what? <laughs> Where the screen was only like green and black. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So like a DOS computer, not Windows. Yes, it was DOS. Did those computers come with the, the internet and AOL? No. Okay, well, we definitely had that. And then we had AOL or maybe Prodigy came first. I forget which one came first. We had Prodigy. And I remember I was the age where I was really into the Babysitter's Club because there actually was a Babysitter's Club website <laughs> that I would visit for like additional stories about Claudia and Christy and Marianne. There were already like hundreds of them. How did you need additional stories? I just needed it. She was that hungry for knowledge, Chris. And I remember how slow it took to load each page. And I would like <laughs> wait with anticipation for each page of like, here's Dawn. Dawn is from California. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, I mean, how old was I? Like 10? And every time there was like a new update, I was there <laughs> like from <laughs> from that young because I remember when I finally got my own. Well, I had a prodigy screen name. It was Looky Looky. <laughs> and I remember my prodigy ID was MHHXO3D. Wow. Wow. And I would I would go to the Disney, the Disney fan club message boards if you need a whole story about me, you know, being best friends of Jonathan Taylor Thomas on the internet, <laughs> go back to our heartthrobs episode because I'm not going to recap it here. <laughs> We're just going to drop that audio in though because it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> All two hours of it. Yeah. <laughs> TLDR. Uh... <laughs> she was very much in love. <laughs> With a 50-year-old man probably. Every single step of the way of technology improving, like I was there on the internet. I remember in seventh and eighth grade, I didn't have that many friends, but I had friends on the internet from my Disney fan club page and I would go home every single day and talk to them for hours. And that's how I learned how to type really fast is I would chat with them and I am with them. Those people I know were real because some of them I met in person or I talked to them on the phone many times. (laughs) They were other girls my age that loved Disney around the country. And those were some of my closest friends for like a couple years until I went to high school. And that was like a sweet spot where then I was on AIM a lot, but it was pre-social media, but I stopped going in chat rooms. So what I mainly used the internet for in high school, I'm pretty sure was just like AIM, like chatting with people, which is, I think if I had a phone then compared to today, it would be like texting my friends all day long. Mm -hmm. It was a really big deal in our house. My mom, she had her own like comedy show on AOL. (laughs) She was like, Oh my God. The webmaster of it or like the host of it. Oh, wow. 
So like at a certain time, and it was late, I think it was like 2 a.m. For two hours, she was the host of this comedy chat room. But like typing, right? Not video. Typing. Right. Okay. Typing. But it was for comedians. Huh. Isn't that strange? Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> it's cute. I love it. I can totally picture that. I love that. It's cute, yes, but I th- I think just like compared to today, like do people do that now? It's mis- it's mostly like forums or videos or it's yeah. just strange compared to today when you think about it. But that was like her show. It's funny now because in quarantine times, you know, like Zoom comedy shows have become a huge thing. Oh, you're right. And it like kind of feels like that part of it has come full circle as far as like comedy on the internet. Yeah, I think you're right. It was my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> It was how big a part of it. So, okay, all of it. Got it. Yeah. My story is similar in many ways to Becky's, but I got started a bit earlier. When I was growing up, my mom worked for IBM basically forever. So we always had computers around. We had at least one DOS machine at home. We also had a computer by the hilariously named company Wang. That company no longer exists. So RIP Wang. That one had its own specialized operating system, but it was also like a, you know, green and black screen kind of thing. We didn't have any Windows 3.1 machines, I don't think. The first PC that we got was in 1995 or 1996. That was an IBM Aptiva with Windows 95, and that was one of the big breakthrough advances uh, in graphically rich operating systems, and also in operating systems being able to support modems and dial-up internet technology. So basically, from that moment onward, I was terminally online. <laughs> Starting with like a 28.8 modem, that was the, the fastest modem you could get at the time. And of course, I would upgrade every single time we could, and you know, eventually we got a, a 56k modem. Ooh! I don't exactly remember if the first time I ever logged on to the internet was at home on that computer or if it was at school, because at school we had a great computer lab and also had AOL accounts, I think, that were like just for the lab. So I was trying to think about it and I'm pretty sure that it was at school that I first ever logged on to AOL and like heard that dial-up sound and was like, what the hell is that sound? What is it doing? What's happening? But that sound itself itself is so alien and bizarre and retro-futuristic sounding that it was such a thrill for me the first several thousand times I logged onto the internet because it really did feel like reaching into and reaching beyond everything that was immediately at hand that was right in my periphery, right in my worldview, right in the relatively small bubble of my life at the time. And growing up in New Orleans, I very quickly found that I was able to make connections with people and join groups with fandoms and affinities that I really wasn't able to, you know, just among the friends that I already had in my life, IRL. And I've mentioned some of this on the podcast before, but that's kind of when, you know, going into like fifth, sixth, and seventh grade, I started joining message boards and connecting to other people who were like big Nintendo fans. So I was a member of a Game Boy message board for a long time. And of course, as mentioned before, I was on an X-Files message board, um, at least one or two of them. So yeah, I was a very thorough, constant internet user pretty shortly after it became came available to me. And I didn't use it as a replacement for 
real life relationships. I very much used it to supplement and expand my social circle and to, again, just be able to talk to people who share the same fandom that I did. But also, like Becky was saying, like I very quickly warmed up to using like AOL Instant Messenger, which eventually became AIM, like its own standalone program. And I really loved that too. I loved the immediacy of being able to chat with friends of mine, even when I, you know, didn't want to have a long phone conversation, or sometimes they just weren't really like available on the phone. As many woes and worries and dangers as the internet posed at the time, and I'm sure poses now, it was a pretty wonderful thing for me. And it's been a pretty great force in my life for a long time. I think I probably got a computer after you guys, it sounds like. Um, my first interaction with a computer was in my uh, gifted and talented classroom. We would play Oregon Trail, and that was a very exciting thing to be doing at the time. Oh, yeah. I played so much Oregon Trail. I didn't mention that because we were talking about like internet stuff, but oh my God, did I play some Oregon Trail. <laughs> oh my God. But you could never finish it because I would do it for recess, but it was never long enough to actually finish one game. Much like many travelers on the real Oregon Trail, it, <laughs> you did not reach the end. Yeah. I never finished the game because I kept getting dysentery. <laughs> <laughs> but in real life, right? In real life, not in the game. Uh, yeah. So computers like at that time were like a luxury item. We didn't have have them in my regular school, but just in that one classroom, which I went to like once a week. So it was, you know, something that definitely not everyone had and that definitely wasn't integrated into our life at that point yet. Eventually we did get like our own home computer, which I think was also like a Windows like 95-ish. I think it was around that era. I remember playing a lot of CD-ROM games such as Myst <laughs> yep. and Steven Spielberg's Movie Maker, which somehow starred Jennifer Aniston and Quentin Tarantino. What? What? <laughs> yes, they were both actors in this game from Steven Spielberg. I've chosen you to direct our next project, so welcome to the studio. Fairy tales do come true. It can happen to you with Steven Spielberg's director's chair from DreamWorks Interactive and Knowledge Adventure. You are now a director in charge of filming a major motion picture starring Quentin Tarantino of Pulp Fiction. Anywhere from here? Jennifer Aniston of Friends. Hello, hello, are you still here? Barry Corbin of Northern Exposure. Hello. Catherine Helmand of Who's the Boss? And the magical mayhem of Pam Teller. Stephen will appear every so often to help you, but right now there's one little problem. You've got a studio full of executives breathing down your neck. How did I not have that? I don't know. I, I thought maybe we had talked about it and you did have it. No, I... That makes me feel like we need to revisit that on some other episode of the podcast. It was really crazy. It had, you, like, you could edit a movie starring Jennifer Aniston and Quentin Tarantino. I want to play that now. <laughs> I want to play that now. I was just going to say, yes. do you want to call off this episode and just play this game? <laughs> I want to say Penn and Teller were in it too. I think they were. <laughs> Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. Given the places <laughs> they pop up throughout the 90s, I would not be shocked at all. And then we got Prodigy, um, and my earliest memory of that is there was this Mad Libs kind of game where you would like put in words and then it would like, you know, make a story out of them. And that was a oh hilarious that game to play with my friends. <gasps> <laughs> Memories coming back to me. Memories coming back to me. I used to play that too. Becky, you mentioned you had AOL, but I never knew Prodigy people. I didn't have the Prodigy. I was just not aware of it. 
I always felt like kind of second class because I didn't have AOL. And after a while, like everyone seemed to have AOL. And I was just like, what is this prodigy thing that I have? Like, this isn't the cool thing that I keep seeing advertised. I mean, they were pretty much the same thing. Pretty much. But AOL was a little bit like had a better interface. Oh, uh, yeah. That, and then that mm. was the place to be. Well, aren't you special? Yeah, my head both. <laughs> My overall impression of the internet is my parents being mad at me (laughs) because, for one, you couldn't use the phone during it. Um, Like, I would be on there and I would want to be on there for, you know, a very long time and my parents would want to use the phone or they would be waiting for a call to come through and, like, my grandma would be calling and couldn't, was getting, like, just the busy signal. And I think there was also a period where, like, it would actually kick you off if someone called, which was even more frustrating. So there were all kinds of shenanigans around, you know, dialing up and the way that it interfered with actual phone talking, which, in a family of four and we only had one phone line for a long time and then finally got, like, a separate line and some how the internet figured out all those issues and you could just be on the internet but the computer was in my parents bedroom so um they would often be mad at me (laughs) for like i would be on there chatting and doing homework and so i wouldn't finish my homework for hours and hours because i was Mm -hmm. multitasking (laughs) and then they would want to go to bed and i would be like i can't i have a paper due so yes lots of (laughs) anger (laughs) around the internet but also manipulation it taught you some skills chris Mm mm-hmm Exactly. I learned way more than I did on those like Shakespeare papers. <laughs> right? <laughs> I had a couple of friends who were on like AIM at the time and I would chat with them a little bit, but like you guys, I actually ended up chatting more with like people I didn't know in real life at the time, which hmm. is a little strange now cuz like now we're used to like social media and mostly connecting to people that we do know. But back then it was like chat rooms and stuff. So I would go into movie chat rooms and it was the first time that I really met other people who were really passionate about film because I had friends who liked movies, but no one was like a huge like cinema person. But there I remember like, especially um, I don't know if it was someone's screen name was about Twister or like there was a Twister chat room, (laughs) but I know that a lot of my um, online interaction at that point was Twister centric. It all comes back to Twister. (laughs) (laughs) Just how I like it. And like, it really was an interesting time because you literally did only know three things about people, which was their age, sex and location. There were no pictures really online, like very rare occasions you would make maybe like email someone a picture at some point, but like that didn't really happen when you were just chatting with people. So you had no idea like who these people really were. It was all like really text-based. And so that actually, I think played to my strengths, especially as like a shyer teenager where I could just be funny and like typing and, and using words. There wasn't like a voice element. So I didn't have to like talk or like have to worry about how you looked. It was all just like completely based on kind of like your written personality, which I don't know. I kind of missed in a way. I feel like that still like kind of played to my strengths a little bit. Now obviously like everything is like very video and image based on the internet. Um not totally like Twitter. I feel like people get Twitter followers just by what they write. It's true. Maybe that's why in quarantine I developed a brief Twitter addiction and then had to delete it <laughs> from my phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you made the right choice, Chris. <laughs> It still felt small, even though it was, you know, like the World Wide Web and you're connected to everyone is like somehow like the community still felt pretty tiny. I guess maybe because you were segmenting yourselves in these little like chat rooms on interest space. But it's a weird thing to say, I feel like that it felt like very intimate somehow, but it did to me anyways. 
Yeah, I really totally agree with you. And and I think it's part of what we've been getting at, like that that the internet was so much less about visually depicting and rendering any one world or any one particular platform, you know, like Facebook or Twitter. So it wouldn't be a barrier to entry for you if you didn't have a digital camera or a microphone or something like that. You know, because you you weren't live streaming video, you know, so also you weren't showing people your face or your room or the town where you lived. And I think there's something about the simplicity of that and the text-based nature of that that facilitated a real intimacy. And that's really kind of unintuitive, you know, and you might think that taking that text outlet and the platforms that grew out of that and adding video and more and more images and sounds and endless fucking content would have made that a richer experience. But I do think there's something about it that's been diluted and some intimacy that's been lost, like compared to when we were young. But of course, I also have to put on my anti-capitalist hat here for a second. <laughs> Oh, do you? <laughs> Wait, were you actually not wearing it for a few minutes? Because <laughs> I thought the thing was sewed onto your head. <laughs> Look, it's very warm in here. It's an autumn heat wave in LA. I gotta ventilate somehow. But I feel like part of it was that, of course, AOL and Prodigy and all of these internet service providers were private companies, but their platforms were not entirely geared to serve advertisements, to harvest all of the content that everyone was using and algorithmically sort and repurpose all of the content that everyone was making and everyone's conversations in order to push ads. And so I think there's something about that that is just so structurally completely worlds apart from just talking to one person or talking to a couple other people on a message board that it's like worth making that distinction because I feel like a lot of, not millennials, but like the Zoomer generation who came after us who literally have never lived a day where there wasn't an internet aren't quite aware of how you actually could kind of have private space on the internet. Mm -hmm. Like even that now sounds like a total contradiction in terms and like a total paradox or oxymoron. But I do think then that there was something special about that. And I think that structure of it is part of the reason why all three of us were able to, in some ways, develop our social lives and develop our social skills using the internet, which like now sounds like a horribly ill-advised and a very frightening prospect for anyone who would do it. But at least thinking back on my experience, it's something I'm very grateful I had. Yeah, that's really true. I hadn't really considered the privacy angle. But yeah, I mean, there wasn't really a sense that anything was being monitored back then. I mean, I don't think that there was really the technology to be like saving a lot of that stuff. I assume it just disappeared into the ether. And also, yeah, before it was really commercialized. I mean, the internet, you know, when it started out, you know, it was much more utopic in in nature. And it really was about being free and being a resource for information. You know, I think that carried on into like the 90s and the way that it was just like so exciting for everyone to be to have access to all this and to be able to do this. I mean, obviously, they were charging, you know, for the service, but there wasn't really a sense that it was a money maker. It was really more of a public service and a public good. And that's all gone now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I guess we're all wearing Seth's hat. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You laughed at the hat and then you wore the hat. <laughs> on the mark, get set. We're riding on the internet, cyberspace, set free. 
Hello, virtual reality. Interactive appetite. Searching for a website. A window to the world. Got to get online. Take a spin. Now you're in with the techno set. You're going surfing on the internet. Let's talk a little bit more about the internet. The first prototypes for the internet were developed in the late 60s, funded by the Department of Defense. But the internet as we know it really rose to prominence with a niche techno-savvy audience in the 80s and then the general public in the mid-90s. The World Wide Web was invented in 89 and then took a couple years to be rolled out. In 1994, the first web browser was created. That was Netscape. In 1994, also Yahoo was founded and one of the first e-commerce purchases was made via Pizza Hut. Uh, The movies we're talking about in this episode were released in 1995, and kind of coincidentally, it turns out that 1995 was also the year that the internet really became commercialized for mass consumption. At the time, there were three main companies providing dial-up internet access, CompuServe, America Online, and Prodigy. And that was also the year that Amazon went live, called Earth's Biggest Bookstar. Yeah. It was also the year Craigslist was created. Uh, It was originally an email list of San Francisco Bay Area events. It was the year eBay went live. Uh, The first item sold was a broken laser pointer that sold for (laughs) $14.83. And it was the year that uh, Match.com went live. So it was the first online dating site as well. So pretty much the internet as we know it today was all created in 1995. Wow. That's really interesting. I didn't know about the others, but I did remember eBay from very early on because my dad got into that. Like, my dad was a huge antiques buff. And so, like, the moment that he discovered that eBay was a thing that existed, he was, like, all over that. (laughs) And that was, like, really the first thing over which I would ever have to, like, fight anyone in my family for computer time. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. 1995 was also the year a hacker named Minor Threat was the first person to be officially banned from the internet by a federal judge. (laughs) We've all been there. Come on. It wouldn't surprise me if you had been, but it didn't come out in our little When We Were Young segment. So, Back in 1995, America Online was the most popular online access solution. It was $9.95 for a base fee per month. You got five hours of online access, and after that, it was $2.95 an hour. So if we were still paying that, we would all be paying like thousands of dollars in internet fees every month. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And oh and God. I remember getting the CDs in the mail and like the biggest draw of them was that it would come with like 10 free hours and then it became like 30 free hours. And then it became like a thousand free hours. They went crazy with those CDs. I think at some point, like it was one of the <laughs> most printed CDs like ever created. <laughs> Not surprised. Yeah, they went hard. And I think that's why, like, what gave me, like, the FOMO of AOL was that, like, I kept getting these CDs. I was like, why don't I have this? Even though I did have it, it was just, like, a different service. But mm-hmm. Yeah, when it was like, I never researched those, you know, original internet service providers. So I don't know, like, which of those platforms might actually have been a better platform, you know, just in terms of, like, more reliable or whatever. But I definitely feel like the the, the blitzkrieg of CDs, like, to every American household was absolutely the reason why AOL got the kind of permeation in the market that it did. Yeah, and around this time, I mean, there was also a lot of marketing to the average, you know, American who had, was not yet online. And there was a lot of handholding needing to be done about what the internet was. <laughs> they needed to be really reassured that it was easy because pretty much every like commercial I watched about the internet was like, it's so easy. Every day, America Online is making it easier for people to live, work and play. Hey, Dan, ready for the game? 
I'm just finishing up here with my new kayaking friends. Kayaking friends on your computer? Yeah, I just got America Online. Sounds great. Listen, I can't go to the game today. What? I've got to send something for my mom's birthday. It's tomorrow. I'll then book plane tickets for our trip next week, and my kids got to go to the library to look up dinosaurs. Hey, we can take care of all that before we go. Yeah, right. Oh, with America Online. America Online can do all that? Yeah. How about sending your mom some nice flowers? All you do is click on Marketplace. We place an order. Call now for America Online, a new way to use your computer to communicate, have fun, and get instant news and information. Flowers are sent. Now let's access the online travel service. How long have you had this? About a week. And it's so easy. All you do is point and click. But how does it work? I watched that commercial and I immediately was like, did Chris send me a gay porn from <laughs> the mid-90s? Because <laughs> it started off kind of... <laughs> And it's so easy. <laughs> All you do is point and click. Now point and click this. Yeah. So I thought that was especially funny because my dad actually does have kayaking buddies that he met online. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I could definitely see the gay porn vibe for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I like how email is the last thing. And they're like, and you can even send email. And it's like, wait, that was the big ta-da at the end of all that. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the punchline to the whole thing. So prior to the 90s, computers and technology were kind of in movies. There's like Tron from 1982 with Jeff Bridges as a computer programmer who goes into a computer. War Games in 1983 with Matthew Broderick as a hacker who accidentally starts World War III by hacking into a military computer. Total Recall in 1990, which is about virtual reality fantasies. And when you look up, like, internet movies in the 90s, like, a lot of the stuff that comes up is, like, uh, The Lawnmower Man from (laughs) 1992, a movie that I watched in full because I hate myself, (laughs) (laughs) which is, I believe, derived from a Stephen King story, as pretty much everything is, about a lawnmower man with autism, question mark. (laughs) It's a big question mark. (laughs) Who becomes telekinetic because of a computer. I don't really understand the point of this movie. (laughs) I have other different games. I even have one that could help make you smarter. I was born dumb. But you would like to be smarter, wouldn't you? I don't know. Well, if you were smarter, I mean, people wouldn't be able to take advantage of you. Do you understand what I mean, Joe? Yeah. Sometimes they do. They do. (laughs) Yeah, it's basically just like, I guess a computer makes him carry, basically. And he starts killing people, including, like, friends and loved ones, Pierce Brosnan, poor Pierce Brosnan. This is not a good movie. This is a very campy (laughs) movie. (laughs) Yeah, I have not seen this, but uh, just the trailer in the clips we watched looked absolutely hilarious. It's also got like a Flowers for Algernon kind of situation (laughs) going on, where the guy who was, again, I don't know if he's developmentally very disabled or autistic or what, but yeah, this does not seem like a great film. (laughs) It's kind of like if Forrest Gump went on a kill (laughs) (laughs) but using AOL. (laughs) 
<laughs> and a lawnmower. He does use a lawnmower to kill someone at one point. That was the other hilarious part. Is the movie's called Lawnmower Man, and the whole time I was wondering, like, what is what is that referencing? There's no way he's going to have. Oh, he has an actual lawnmower. <laughs> he's actually mowing a lawn. Fair <laughs> enough, movie. Yeah, it's painful. There's like really cheesy like cyber sex, like where they actually like show them as like avatars, like melding into each other. It's embarrassing. <laughs> it's embarrassing all around. I actually thought this movie looked scary at the time. I guess I wasn't paying enough attention because it it's not scary. I, I literally thought this was a horror movie. Like, because yeah, I, I, when, when you said watch this clip, I was like, I think I'm confusing it with like Hellraiser maybe. <laughs> like I got that confused with yeah. Hellraiser for some reason. Becky, that's exactly what I kind of associated it with. It was one of those movies where, like, when I was a kid, I was like, oh, I bet I shouldn't watch this. I've heard it's super scary. And it I don't think it's going to be. <laughs> I mean, it kind of is a horror movie. It's just so ridiculous that, I mean, maybe it would have been scary, like, if I'd seen it as a kid. But let's just say it doesn't hold up. <laughs> in 1992 there was also Sneakers with Robert Redford and Sidney Poitier and Dane Aykroyd in a big cast I've seen that movie and that's a fun one but they're just like a team of hackers I have to mention Jurassic Park because my beloved blonde Lex is a hacker who saves the day with her hacking <laughs> it's the one part of Jurassic Park you may recall that I had a problem with <laughs> yeah it's not the best yeah it's the only part that doesn't really hold up <laughs> and then uh, speaking of Michael Crichton there's a uh, Disclosure uh, a movie that we disclosed on a previous episode of the podcast. Uh, again, we're just going to put that whole episode in, or again, I'm ready to do that again. I'm ready to just re-revisit <laughs> that movie. Yeah, that was the movie we watched for Michael Douglas erotic thrillers, and we had no idea there was a whole thing about early 90s internet in Disclosure. But boy, is there ever. And it really fits in with a theme that we'll you know continue to talk about of like, why computer files are always like very visual and like not not just like visual but they are like entire places that people go for some reason yeah it's a theme that we'll talk about more but these movies present a very unrealistic body image for what the internet would look like <laughs> true i mean i'm never like browsing my files and like oh there's demi Moore in the middle of my screen like handing this file to me no that's not I, how it works i don't works. find any angels in the apps thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> so that brings us to the year 1995, the year that we're kind of looking at today, and The Net, which was directed by Academy Award winner Erwin Winkler. What did he win an award for? Not directing. Uh, <laughs> that was a bigger <laughs> dig than I really meant it to be. But um, he was a producer. What did he produce? He produced Rocky, Raging Bull, and Goodfellas. Oh my goodness. Oh, Multi-Oscar yeah. winner. And, and also, like, they shoot horses, don't they? And the right stuff. Like, he's got a long, long storied career. Oh boy. His directorial career is less storied. He also <laughs> did At First Sight with Mira Sorvino and Val Kilmer, where he plays a blind man. And Life as a House. Yeah. The Net was written by John Brancato and Michael Ferris, who also wrote Terminator 3 and The Game. So both very on brand with The Net. And also Catwoman, which is less so. <laughs> and to be fair, they were uh, like co-writers on there. So who knows what went wrong there. The Net stars Sandra Bullock, Jeremy Northam, Wendy Gazelle, and Dennis Miller. Sandra Bullock was coming off a breakout role in Speed in 1994 and While You Were Sleeping earlier in 1995. So this was really the moment of arrival, I would say, for Sandra Annette Bullock. In the net, Angela Bennett is a homebody systems analyst for Cathedral Software who stumbles upon a nefarious internet conspiracy and sees her entire life deleted before her eyes. 
I've been appointed to help you, but everything you're saying is just so far-fetched. They've changed your name, your friend's medical records, crash planes, because... But just think about it. Just think about it. Our whole world is sitting there on a computer. It's in the computer. Everything. Your, your DMV records, your, your social security, your credit cards, your medical history. It's all right there. Everyone is stored. And there's like this little electronic shadow on each and every one of us just, just begging for somebody to screw with. And you know what? They've done it to me. And you know what? They're going to do it to you. Look, Miss Marks. Um, I'm not Ruth Marks, okay? They invented her. They put her on your computer with my thumbprint. The original idea came from Erwin Winkler, and it was about a woman who hires someone to fake a resume so she can get a job at an important advertising company. <laughs> Perfect. The writers thought that was boring. So um, <laughs> as they researched the idea, they came up with the idea that the movie actually is um, and pitched it to him. Uh, Erwin Winkler had a tennis injury and was on a lot of painkillers, so he agreed. <laughs> I wish the development process for more movies was exactly like that. I might have an actual film career by now if that was the case. Not expecting that detail. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that that's how the Lawnmower Man was made as well. Oh, when absolutely. they pitched this movie to the studio, they had to tell them what the internet was. <laughs> that's where we were in internet like awareness at the time. That also totally checks out. Like, knowing and working to some degree within the film industry for a long time, I can totally see all the suits in 1995 Hollywood having no fucking idea what the internet was. Yeah, I think that AOL commercial was actually probably just the pitch for the net. <laughs> the net was made for a budget of $22 million. It grossed $50 million in the U.S. and $110 million in the world overall. It was number two at the box office uh, behind the opening of Waterworld. And it was followed by Apollo 13 and Clueless. The reviews were pretty average. It has a Metacritic score of 51. Marjorie Baumgarten of the Austin Chronicle gave it one and a half stars and said, The Net is the first of several new movies that tap into the growing national fear of becoming roadkill on the information highway. The movie's suspense derives from figuring out how wide the evil net has been cast. But in terms of suspense, this net is full of holes. Steve Persall of the Tampa Bay Times had a slightly more positive outlook on the film. He gave it a B plus and said, even when the net goes offline, Bullock's captivating presence is a screensaver. Uh, uh, do, I li- uh, uh, do I like that? It's on the verge. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I think it's cute. It's on the verge of pretty good. I mean, he's no Rita Kempley. Let's put it that way. I could not find a reader review of either of these films. <laughs> Rita must have logged off that week. <laughs> <laughs> the film also got three stars from Ebert, so he was a pretty decent fan. Wow. Yeah. So did you guys see The Net in 1995 or any time after? I've never seen it before this podcast. What? Never. Shame. That is surprising. So I definitely knew going into this and even before rewatching that I had seen The Net many times growing up. I cannot remember if I somehow saw it in the theaters, but I wasn't 13 until 1998. So well, they didn't really like enforce that, did they? I, they enforced it for like rated R, but I don't think they ever like really checked for PG-13. That's right. I may well have seen this in the movie theaters because I mean, like I said, at the time I was definitely all about, especially like AOL, um, I was really 
I like I remembered hearing about the movie and then like seeking it out. So I, I I do think that I did see this like in the theaters, probably with my parents. I loved it as a kid. <laughs> I thought Sandra Bullock's character was so cool. I'm sure that I didn't really have the vocabulary to describe myself or other people as introverted or extroverted at the time. But yeah, there was something about Sandra Bullock's character that was super cool. I loved the kind of cat and mouse game of that the whole movie's story sets up. And I was really intrigued by the idea that all of someone's personal information could be online and that that might make it subject and at, at threat of being compromised or changed or deleted. Yeah, I really remembered enjoying this movie a whole lot. And I it's not necessarily a movie that I revisited a lot after that. But at the time that it was out, I was all about the net, you guys. <laughs> wow. Where you, you would say you were caught in the net. Officially, fully enmeshed in the web <laughs> of the net. Oh, <laughs> so I was texting a friend uh, using the internet <laughs> while I was watching this movie. <laughs> and, you know, when I said, oh, I'm watching the net, I used the nerd with glasses emoji, <laughs> which is one of my favorite emojis. It's an all-time great. And I realized that that really sums up my reaction to this movie <laughs> and how I feel about my own love for this movie. Um, it's a nerd I with love glasses? Nothing- <laughs> like, it's a nerdy movie to love, but like... It really is. That emoji is so joyful. He looks so happy. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how I look when I'm watching The Net. I love nothing more than a conspiracy thriller. <sighs> Same. Except maybe a disaster movie, especially as they did it in the 90s of like an average person like getting in over their head. Like The Fugitive was like a big formula for this or John Grissom movies. But yeah, I mean, there's something about that premise that even in like a pretty mediocre movie, I really enjoy it. It's kind of like a comfort food, I guess. This movie is part of my DNA. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Chris, this is so funny. Obviously, this is not a subject that we ever would have had any cause to part talk about. Part of your DNA. Kind of, Becky, honestly, it's it's pretty much the same for me, too. <laughs> what? I saw this in theaters with my mom. It was just me and her, I'm pretty sure. And I think it might have been the first time that we went to a movie like without my sister, like where it was, you know, like a PG-13 movie. I would have been 12. So like I had seen, you know, like Batman and Jurassic Park in theaters, but this was the first like more like adult kind of oriented movie, even though it wasn't like a rated R movie. But, you know, it wasn't like a movie that you would expect kids to go to. So it was like kind of a rite of passage for me, I think. Like it was kind of a milestone movie. And I definitely owned it on VHS and watched it very frequently. I would say this is probably one of my top 10 favorite movies growing up. I really love this movie and I'm glad to hear that Seth at least did at the time. I don't I don't know how he feels now. We will find out in a second. But um, judging by Becky's tone, I feel like I'm about to be a little bit <laughs> wounded. <laughs> so what do we think about the net uh, in modern day? I guess let's start with Becky. Oh, me? Me? <laughs> yes. A little old me. I do not have a soft spot for pulpy (laughs) cat and mouse thrillers. So I did not like this movie. (laughs) It was pretty forgettable. I guess this is not my cup of tea. I I didn't like it. (laughs) I didn't like it. 
I don't know what I was expecting, but when it became like about, you know, chasing her and and it became this like pulpy thriller, I was just like, oh, <laughs> and I got like disappointed. It became just very generic. It didn't feel specifically about the Internet or what it was really like at the time to be on the Internet. I, it Like it didn't capture like what it was like at, at the time to be on the Internet in 1995. And it just became like it, it felt like it could have been about anything. Like she could have had like a diamond, you know, and and they're wow. and they're trying to chase her down. I just didn't find her to be a compelling character. I didn't find the plot to be anything new. Well, Becky, it's been nice talking to you. Um, Seth and I are going to take over the podcast <laughs> now. Yeah, Becky has been ejected from the chat. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Seth, how long had it been since you'd seen this movie? I don't think I ever really rewatched it after like watching it a lot of times around when it first came out. I'm now pretty certain that I did see it in the theaters like at like the mall that was close to my neighborhood where I could just literally like walk over and go see movies. And I know that I probably rented it from Blockbuster Video and definitely would have caught it on cable at least once or twice. I didn't really revisit it until rewatching it last night for this episode. And you know what? I loved the net when I was growing up, and I still love it now. Mm. Yay. <laughs> Why do you I guess what's to love? I loved this movie. This I thought the net still has some genuinely shocking and beautiful moments in it. It has some shots that are just perfect, like literally perfect framing. I thought Sandra Bullock acted the absolute hell out of this movie. I really also thought it was very well paced. We'll go into specific moments from the movie that we really enjoyed. But I just thought, again, that the cat and mouse aspect of it was great. I liked that it wasted no time at all getting into this story. You know, it so effectively shows you exactly who Sandra Bullock's character is in an instant. And then it's already setting up the world of this movie and the major conflict of the story, like, from the very first scene. No one leaves the house anymore. No one has sex. The net is holding with condom. Come on, talk like that, Iceman, could lead to the eventual extinction of our species. My sympathies exactly, Angel. Let's have a date and procreate. Not me. Two days, I'm off on vacation. Just me, beach, and a book. I'm there, babe. Look no further. Sorry, not my time. So I just thought it was really well done, and it was very pleasantly surprising to me not to be let down revisiting this movie that I liked so much when it came out. Unlike Becky, I thought it did actually capture the novelty of what it felt like to be on the internet and to be able to use the internet to do real-life stuff. I don't think I ordered any pizzas online until I was in college, but the idea of that, or buying a plane ticket, or even in those moments where she's just in chat rooms online, I did feel that that captured the experience and, again, the thrill of what it meant to be on the internet when that was a new thing. And also, I really liked the way it represented the risks and dangers inherent in that. 
in a way that I felt like wasn't taking itself overly seriously, you know, because I do think in a lot of ways, the net absolutely would have been so much campier and shittier if it had really tried to take itself too seriously. So I really enjoyed this movie. Chris, did you still retain your love of the net? Absolutely. Yes. I bought it, I don't know, maybe five years ago and watched it then because it had been a long time since I'd watched it because I'd had it on VHS. And then, you know, there was a long time when I didn't have a VHS player anymore. But when I rebought it, I still enjoyed it. So I knew I was going to like still really enjoy this movie, although like I had never really like sat down and thought too critically about the net. You know, I just knew I enjoyed it. So um, I agree with Youssef and I guess disagree with Becky in about like (laughs) a lot of the specifics about the internet. Like I think it really does in that kind of opening scene where you meet Angela Bennett, like capture the feel of the net that we were kind of talking about when we went into our own history. She's ordering a large pizza with anchovies and eats M&Ms because she looks exactly like that type of person that would do that. Well, yes, that, yes, that is the scene. I mean, I don't have strong thoughts on her choice of pizza or (laughs) dessert, but. And also, Becky, are you shaming her looks? I'm sorry. I'm a beautiful person and I grew up living on the internet. Is there something wrong with that? (laughs) Don't know how to answer that. Don't know how to answer that. (laughs) Well, then I I think it's best that you don't answer at all, maybe. Um, But I I think it's just very economical in the way that it, like, opens with that scene and you see all the ways that she's cut off from the world, which, like, ends up being, like, really, like, the thing that allows the villains to, like, do the evil plot. Because if she was someone who had, like, a ton of interaction with people, like, none of this would work. So I thought it was really, like, very forward thinking about the ways that, like, technology ends up cutting you off from human interaction. And, like, we're in a kind of a weird moment of it now where, like, we kind of have to do that. But, like, we're really seeing, like, all of the things that we can do online and all of the the ways that we don't have to, like, interact with people. And for this, in 1995, to already be looking at these things when we're (laughs) going to be looking at more movies in a moment. But they they did not (laughs) look at the things this way, you know? Like, this felt much more grounded in the way that, like, the internet is actually, like, a part of our lives and would be a part of our lives. Actually, a lot of the stuff that happens in this movie, like ordering a pizza online or booking travel tickets, wasn't actually something you could do when they were writing this movie. And kind of basically in around the same time, like all that stuff became something you could do. But so they were like thinking through kind of like where the internet would be going. And I think it does a really good job of showing like, I mean, so this is still the kind of stuff that we do use the internet for. And so I thought it didn't really feel dated in that way. I mean, obviously, like the computer graphics look way different. Um, they look more like old AOL screens. But in terms of the actual use of the internet, like it felt like pretty grounded to me. And not only that, but like throughout the plot of the movie, these terrorists who are the kind of like distant baddie bad guys of the story use their hacking skills to do things like hack the uh, air traffic control at LAX airport. They use it to hack the stock market. They use it to hack the California DMV. 
And most of that kind of infrastructure, at the time, none of that was really networked and connected to the internet. But especially like in the years since, like even in much, much more recent years, not only have there been like hack attacks on the stock market, but that kind of super high frequency, all digital, all online currency manipulation is now like a massive thing that, you know, happens in the news. It happens kind of in our daily lives now. And these basic aspects of infrastructure and these basic parts of our lives are actually all online now. I found it to be a very surprisingly prescient movie for being a Sandra Bullock cat and mouse thriller like it is. I also thought that it really foregrounded again in a way that it couldn't have predicted at the time but you know in retrospect it kind of feels like it should have been predictable the ways in which men would use the internet and all of the online connected technology as a tool to surveil and harass and harm women so who are you jack (laughs) who am i who am i I'll tell you who I am. I'm Captain Goddamn America meets Albert Schweitzer. That's who I am. Isn't that what you always wanted? Yeah, it is. I remember. It was, um... Butch. Beautiful. Brilliant. Spends all day dashing into the fray. Her fists flying. Now, sorry, I don't know any, uh, organ cantatas. Was that it? Yeah, and if you'll excuse me, it's, uh... It's time to make the world safe for democracy. And even just in the way that the movie is shot, a lot of, especially the early parts of the movie, just really do look like spying on Sandra Bullock's character. I mean, a a lot of the characters in the movie are just straight up spying on her. But it's also like even the movie takes that kind of voyeuristic perspective. And so I also thought that was a really smart and intelligent way to comment on the downside risks of this technology and to comment on, you know, frankly, some of the reasons why a character like hers would be such a homebody and would intentionally distance herself from most of society most of the time. Yeah, I do love the way that it bridges like the 70s conspiracy thriller with things that were obviously like very cutting edge in the 90s of like the internet. And I like what you said about, you know, predicting the way that men, you know, kind of weaponize all the information that's on the internet. And I think that's a really interesting scene that like this guy shows up in Mexico that like is a little too perfect and, you know, would be someone to be a little wary of when he like guesses exactly where she's from. (laughs) He may be like over plays that a little bit. <laughs> Is that business or pleasure? Is there a difference? Not a great deal if you're a hacker. It's a nice piece of hardware. I assume you're in the business. Isn't everybody? Nope. <sighs> God, we're pathetic, aren't we? Excuse me? Well, we're here. We're sitting on the most perfect beach in the world, and all we can think about is where... Where can I hook up my bottom? 
But look, I have always been waiting for my hot British tech daddy to sweep me away in his yacht. We've all been there. Much like Sandra Bullock, I often find it difficult to know if a man is interested in me or wants to torture and kill me. It could be both. It could be both. That's true. Thank you. Thank you for expanding my possibilities here. I guess I'm just finding it hard to believe that you guys like this movie legitimately and not as like like a soap opera. Or maybe you do. I mean, I think it's a little of both, but I think there's a lot of really good stuff in it. Yeah, I wholeheartedly say that it's both. Like, for the reason that I said earlier is because, like, the movie doesn't take itself, like, deadly seriously, but it's also not stupid about anything that it's doing. Chris, I really share your love of conspiracy thrillers, especially, like, the 70s ones where the paranoia is just dialed up to a million And I really do feel like so much of what I love about this movie just comes from the lead character in this conspiracy thriller being a woman and not being a man, Mm -hmm. because it changes all of the incentives they have. It really ramps up all of the risks that that character faces and makes it so that really in almost every way, nothing that they're paranoid about is really all that unjustified, because there are so, so many ways that men fuck over and plot and scheme to hurt women. I'm not sure why surprising, but I really enjoyed this. Yeah, and as much as you're saying about the Jeremy Northam character, Jack Devlin is astute. I also think that there's something that's really interesting about the female villain and the role that she plays because she becomes like the doppelganger of Angela Bennett and kind of introduces like a vertigo element of like a female double a little bit. Again, it's not like super serious, you know, it's mostly like a kind of a frothy thriller, but like the moment when she calls up her own workplace and the woman like answers, hello, this is Angela Bennett and like you're talking to like someone impersonating you over the phone I think that's really interesting and just like a great thriller moment Angel Software Russ Melbourne Mr. Melbourne is no longer with the company what do you mean what may I connect you to someone who could help you I don't I've never I've never I've never dealt with anybody in operations I don't who may I connect you no anybody else um the head of, head of security systems, please look, just tell them that it's Angela Bennett. Thank you, I'll put you through to Miss Bennett. What? No. I am Angela Bennett. Hello? Hello, this is Angela Bennett. <sighs> Who is this? This is Angela Bennett, Hello? someone that can help you give us the disc angela you have the wrong person i don't i don't know what you're talking about angela we're not offering an option here just give us the disc and we'll give you your life back Yeah, I really enjoyed that too. The alternate fake name that's given to Angela Bennett is Ruth Marks. (laughs) And you learn at the end of the movie, basically, that that doppelganger Angela is the real Ruth Marks. Or did they just say that? I always wonder if they also just like assigned her the identity of Ruth Marks to like close out what they did. I don't know. I wondered about that. But like, for some reason, Ruth Marks was one of the details that I remembered the most clearly about this movie. (laughs) Yeah, no, me too. And then another thing I wanted to call out was a pretty big surprise for me, uh, which is that I really enjoyed Dennis Miller in this movie. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, really. I don't know you at all anymore. <laughs> Look, Becky, I contain multitudes, okay? <laughs> We've been replaced by Ruth Marks. <laughs> I'm Ruth Marks. <laughs> Just kidding. My name's actually <laughs> Becky. <laughs> 
<laughs> so when I saw Dennis Miller's name in the opening credits, I thought to myself, uh, well, if anything's going to be a lead balloon in this thing, it's going to be Dennis Miller. <laughs> he arrives around the mathematical middle of this movie when Angela Bennett's paranoia is at its all-time peak. And I was really surprised by how well his character works, both to act as a kind of sounding board for Angela Bennett, for her to ground herself in reality in that moment, but also it, it was really interesting to step back and notice how he arrives as this character structurally in this movie in order to let the whole movie pause and breathe when the pace of everything has been so breakneck and crazy. And in that first scene they have together, again, I thought Sandy acted the hell out of it. Angela Bennett has a monologue here where she vocalizes out loud as she's realizing how vulnerable she has made herself by being so totally open about herself and her life on the internet. And how much she put herself at risk just by having put everything out there, leaving it available for someone to find. I thought that monologue she gave was just so profound and so relatable in a way that I'm sure the filmmakers had no way of knowing would be so especially relatable right now in 2020. Like, everything she talks about in this monologue has gone so much further ahead in the scale, in the danger, than what she was talking about at the time. But it was prescient. No, my father has nothing to do with the fact, nothing to do with the fact that my car is missing. It has nothing to do with the fact that my house is empty. It has nothing to do with the fact that the Los Angeles Police Department is chasing after me and that somebody out there wants to kill me. No! No, I believe something happened, but that just doesn't make sense. Oh. I don't want to be simplistic here, Angie, but I think you're just reaching out. You know what? You're absolutely right. I am reaching out. Reaching out to anybody who knows me. Anybody who will listen to me and believe me and be my friend and... Hey, 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 Angie. I'm sorry. Sometimes it's easier for me to play doctor than it is to listen. I just don't... I don't understand. I don't understand. Why me? Why me? I am nobody. I am nothing. But they knew. They knew everything about me. They knew... They knew what I ate. They knew what I drank. They knew what movies that I watched. They knew... They knew... They knew what... Where I was from. They knew what... What, what cigarettes I used to smoke and, and... And... And everything they... They did. They must have watched on the... On the internet. I don't know. Watched my credit cards. Our whole lives are on the computer. And they knew. They knew that I could be vanished. They knew that nobody would care. That nobody okay. would understand. And they it's knew it, okay. it wouldn't matter it's anymore. It's going to be okay. Yeah, I really felt that way, too, about that monologue. It's just that it felt such, like, a warning that everyone should have been like, oh, wow, Angela's right. We should really lock this down and not <laughs> share so much information. And it took us, like, at least 20 years to kind of learn that lesson, which I, I wouldn't say is totally sunk in yet <laughs> uh, for a lot of us anyway. <laughs> yeah, totally. And by the time those privacy tools actually came out, our government was already sucking up all of the internet and all its data all at once. Like we were talking about earlier in the difference between having an AOL as like the whole kind of universe versus now having Twitter and Facebook and these specific platforms that are just kind of moderated content farms. It was really surprising that in the middle of a movie like this, that is more of like a frothy character thriller than it is like a Michael Clayton type like techno espionage movie, that it would touch on something that is this weighty and and that now would just seem like such a clear warning and a harbinger of the future in retrospect. 
Yeah, the villain in this movie is a computer software called Gatekeeper that's supposed to protect your software and is actually like a Trojan horse for people to get in. And so I found it really interesting that, you know, like this is a, you know, a movie from 1995, like 10 years before Facebook was a thing, where it's basically like the company that's saying that it's going to like protect you and keep you safe is actually the company that's like stealing your secrets and and fucking with you. And, you know, like the villain is actually like the CEO of that company and that just mm-hmm. like yeah again like resonated in a way that wasn't like super heavy handed it's just interesting that this movie has all these like little ideas that reflect things that we now fear or know about the internet you don't know who you're talking to on the internet all the time you know that a lot of it can be lies you know and conspiracies the fact that she has like this double who's taking her place like really I think speaks to the way that like the internet can manipulate like your identity and you can sort of present yourself as someone that you're not that you know is mostly like you but you know you're presenting yourself as slightly different which a lot of people are doing like on social media so yeah I think there's so many like fascinating ideas here for a movie that is mostly just a fun movie it's not her, I'm telling you, it's not Angela Bennett. Please, sir, calm down. I am Angela Bennett. Please, the real Angela Bennett had to deed the mortgage papers. Come on. I got 20,000 into computers over here. I checked every record. It's not her. Yeah. <clears throat> Look, oh. ma'am, it would help everything if you could just produce some form of identification. You know what? I agree with you. I agree with you. But as I've told you 1,000 times already today that I had everything stolen in Cozumel. Oh, please. Ask how she got across the border without a passport. I had a temporary issued. Do they do that? I don't think they do that. God, this is ridiculous. Here, here it is. This is it. It's just that it's under a different name. Why is that? Because they think I'm not me. Is this your signature? Well, no, it's it's my handwriting, but I just signed the different name that they gave me. It's a federal offense to forge a visa. Oh, really? It is. And what is it to steal an entire house? And I think it all really works, mostly because of the character of Angela Bennett and especially the performance of Sandra Bullock. I can think of so many actresses who wouldn't have pulled this off in the same way. Like, I always like Sandra Bullock, and she's great and elevates things like speed where, you know, that role could have been a lot less than it was. But in this movie, like, I really feel like I buy her, maybe not as someone who eats a large pizza every night, but... Like, I buy her, like, her vulnerability, the way that she, you know, like, especially interacts with the guy that likes her. And I don't know, she just has this ability to sell, like, humility that I feel like most, like, beautiful actresses don't actually pull off very well. Yeah, no, I totally agree, Um, especially in terms of the vulnerability um, and her kind of ability to modulate that paranoia. Yeah, surprise is the word that keeps coming up, because I really (laughs) did not expect this movie to hold up nearly as well for me as it really did. Well, I guess my biggest hang up watching movies that center around a specific technology is that they just get dated very quickly. So watching this from 2020, I don't know. I can't watch it and get into the story because it just seems so old because the Internet is so different now. I do agree that she does say some things that are still relevant that like, oh, all of your data is online and, you know, everything that you do is online and people can just take it. But I guess just the details of it, of like what it looks like and it just, I guess that was just distancing me from enjoying it more. Yeah, I guess I can, I mean, understand that. I don't really feel the same way because I I guess I just see movies like of the time that they were made. So like... You know, like I watch a 70s movie and they're using like an old phone and that doesn't bother me that it doesn't look like that they're not using like a cell phone. You know, it's I guess it's kind of the same thing. 
Well, it's not, I don't know. It just felt like the whole thing felt very dated to me. Just it felt like a 90s movie. And I just don't enjoy those as well. So the whole thing just felt like very old to me. It's unfortunate that you have this anti-90s bias, Becky. (laughs) Especially since we do a podcast about the 90s. (laughs) Why are you such an ageist? Have I I liked anything that was in the 90s? I can't remember. Spice Girls? (laughs) I don't think you remember that podcast very well because (laughs) I didn't have too many glowing things to say. (laughs) I think you accurately remember how much I don't remember that podcast. <laughs> Are we going to insert the entire Spice Girls yep. podcast in here now? <laughs> Seth, cut in the Spice Girls podcast right here. It, it, is this our episode that we just keep having flashbacks? This because... is our clip show episode. Becky, the one thing I'll agree with, semi-agree with. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and it's not even so much a thing that I think is dated so much as this is a cinematic convention and I don't remember seeing it in anything before the net. So I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that the directors or cinematographers of the net invented this, which is the cinematic technique of doing a fast zoom in on a computer monitor <laughs> to try to make it more compelling. <laughs> there were a lot of weird zooms in this, like cuts. There were a lot of them and they intentionally varied the speed of them depending on how suspenseful the scene itself was supposed to be. Yeah, the moment when he tells her the truth about who he is on the boat, it was like zooming into his face and then cutting to her and then cutting back to him and then cutting over there. It was just like, yeah. I can actually say that that didn't even work that well in the 90s, at least for me, because I remember like watching the movie and not liking (laughs) that moment. And it also kind of like does like a slow-mo thing a couple of times in action scenes, Mm -hmm. like when she hits him with the fire extinguisher (laughs) in the end. Yeah, there's some filmmaking that I don't think is great. (laughs) We need to cut in, if nothing else, the sound of the scream that Jeremy Northam yells (laughs) out (laughs) the last time she (laughs) knocks him with the fire hydrant and like knocks him off of this ramp to his death basically I wish that that scream would have become the new Wilhelm scream that you like heard in every movie ever Um, but I did genuinely enjoy that action sequence (laughs) yeah I mean I think that there's like this movie maybe could have been like a notch better with like a really like A-list director I think this is mostly Mm -hmm. well directed especially in the more like character driven scenes like I I don't really dislike the direction but I think that there maybe was a little room to elevate it slightly but I don't know it kind of becomes a part of the aesthetic that I love you know it's just like even the dumb little zooms and stuff are like a warm little blanket that I (laughs) that I put on yeah I would definitely love to see a more Michael Clayton-ish version of a movie like this but Chris like you I found that so much of this like complemented the movie uh, and so much of the 90s-ness elevated it for me and I didn't really feel like it took me out of it so I have to say this one thing that maybe will explain to Becky a little bit why I connected to this film. One of the opening scenes where you meet Angela, after a day of working remotely for a technology company, she orders a large pizza online, <laughs> makes a cocktail, <laughs> listens to Annie Lennox, That's right. and talks to a guy named Cyberbob. This is literally my life. I am Angela Bennett. I thought you were going to say you were Cyberbob. I am Cyberbob. We established this already. Okay. 
And she lives in Los Angeles. It's it's kind of nuts, actually, that I like pretty much rearranged my life to become Sandra Bullock in the net. Also, I have to shout out, there are a lot of great LA filming locations here. They definitely yeah. shot at the Santa Monica Pier. There is definitely a sequence where she's like driving on the 405 and it's raining for some reason. And I'm like, that's not accurate. There's no rain anymore. <laughs> Becky, can you at least agree that we're glad that she did not like end the movie walking into a giant computer maze and like throw files out of her way. <laughs> I am very grateful for that. <laughs> yes. The net was followed by a TV series, which lasted for one season on USA uh, in the late 90s. Oh my God, seriously? And the net 2.0 went direct to video in 2006. Ooh. I have seen neither of those because as much as I love this movie, um, a continuation did not sound like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I saw the TV series pop up on IMDb when I looked this up. I, I mean, it was such a hit for me personally, but it wasn't exactly the biggest blockbuster of all time. I mean, that was still like a pretty big hit at the time for like a mid-budget thriller. It made like, you know, several times its budget back. So, Oh, definitely. And, and I'm sure it made plenty of money on rentals too. It's just that it wasn't like the smash hit of the year and it wasn't really an awards season contender either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was surprising to see it get adapted to TV. So the net has been surfed. <laughs> uh, we still have more keyboard chaos and floppy disk <laughs> foul play to explore in part two of this episode. So BRB. <laughs> yeah, we got three and a half more floppy inches coming your way. TTYL. That means, indeed, we're putting up the away message on this episode of When We Were Young. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcast products. And please rate and review us five stars or more. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram and suggest future episodes for the show. You can also contribute on Patreon at patreon.com slash when we were young to help us make more episodes. I've been Scully and Spooky. I'm MHHXO3D at Prodigy.com. And I'm Angela Bennett. <laughs> Life and angle Turn cartwheels across the floor I was feeling kinda seasick The crowd called out for more The room was harming harder Shade of pain